0: This is Marilyn Lightstone Reads Pride and Prejudice, the fifth book in our podcast series, Marilyn Lightstone Reads, featuring the acclaimed Canadian actress, television and radio host, Marilyn Lightstone. Now, without further ado, here is Marilyn to read us Jane Austen's original epic romance, Pride and Prejudice.
1: Chapter 36 If Elizabeth... When Mr. Darcy gave her the letter, did not expect it to contain a renewal of his offers, she had formed no expectation at all of its contents. But such as they were, it may well be supposed how eagerly she went through them, and what a contrariety of emotion they excited. Her feelings, as she read, were scarcely to be defined." With amazement did she first understand that he believed any apology to be in his power, and steadfastly was she persuaded that he could have no explanation to give which a just sense of shame would not conceal. With a strong prejudice against everything he might say, she began his account of what had happened at Netherfield. She read with an eagerness which hardly left her power of comprehension and from impatience of knowing what the next sentence might bring, was incapable of attending to the sense of the one before her eyes. His belief of her sister's insensibility she instantly resolved to be false, and his account of the real, the worst objections to the match made her too angry to have any wish of doing him justice. He expressed no regret for what he had done which satisfied her. His style was not penitent— but haughty. It was all pride and insolence. But when this subject was succeeded by his account of mister Wickham, when she read with somewhat clearer attention a relation of events which, if true, must overthrow every cherished opinion of his worth, and which bore so alarming an affinity to his own history of himself, her feelings were yet more acutely painful, and more difficult of definition astonishment apprehension and even horror oppressed her she wished to discredit it entirely repeatedly exclaiming this must be false this cannot be this 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 must be the grossest falsehood and when she had gone through the whole letter though scarcely knowing anything of the last page or two put it hastily away protesting that she would not regard it that she would never look in it again In this perturbed state of mind, with thoughts that could rest on nothing, she walked on, but it would not do. In half a minute the letter was unfolded again, and collecting herself as well as she could, she again began the mortifying perusal of all that related to Wickham, and commanded herself so far as to examine the meaning of every sentence." The account of his connection with the Pemberley family was exactly what he had related himself, and the kindness of the late Mr. Darcy, though she had not before known its extent, agreed equally well with his own words. So far, each recital confirmed the other, but when she came to the will, the difference was great. What Wickham had said of the living was fresh in her memory, and as she recalled his very words— it was impossible not to feel that there was gross duplicity on one side or the other, and for a few moments she flattered herself that her wishes did not err. But when she read and re-read with the closest attention the particulars immediately following of Wickham's resigning all pretensions to the living— of his receiving in lieu so considerable a sum as three thousand pounds, again was she forced to hesitate. She put down the letter, weighed every circumstance with what she meant to be impartiality, deliberated on the probability of each statement, but with little success. On both sides it was only assertion. Again she read on, But every line proved more clearly that the affair, which he had believed it impossible that any contrivance could so represent as to render Mr. Darcy's conduct in it less than infamous, was capable of a turn which must make him entirely blameless throughout the whole. The extravagance and general profligacy which he scrupled not to lay at Mr. Wickham's charge exceedingly shocked her the more so as she could bring no proof of its injustice. She had never heard of him before his entrance into the militia, no such recollection befriended her. She could see him instantly before her, in every charm of air and address, but she could remember no more substantial good than the general approbation of the neighborhood and the regard which his social powers had gained him in the mess. After pausing on this point a considerable while, she once more continued to read. But alas, the story which followed of his designs on Miss Darcy received some confirmation from what had passed between Colonel Fitzwilliam and herself only the morning before, and at last she was referred for the truth of every particular to Colonel Fitzwilliam himself, "'from whom she had previously received the information "'of his near concern in all his cousin's affairs, "'and whose character she had no reason to question. "'At one time she had almost resolved on applying to him, "'but the idea was checked by the awkwardness of the application.' And at length, wholly banished by the conviction that Mr. Darcy never would have hazarded such a proposal if he had not been well assured of his cousin's corroboration, she perfectly remembered everything that had passed in conversation between Wickham and herself in their first evening at Mr. Phillips. Many of his expressions were still fresh in her memory; she was now struck with the impropriety of such communications to a stranger. "'and wondered it had escaped her before. "'She saw the indelicacy "'of putting himself forward as he had done, "'and the inconsistency of his professions "'with his conduct. "'She remembered that he had boasted "'of having no fear of seeing Mr. Darcy, "'that Mr. Darcy might leave the country, "'but that he should stand his ground. "'Yet he had avoided the Netherfield ball "'the very next week. "'She remembered also that, Till the Netherfield family had quitted the country, he had told his story to no one but herself, but that after their removal it had been everywhere discussed. that he had then no reserves, no scruples in sinking Mr. Darcy’s character, though he had assured her that respect for the father would always prevent his exposing the son. How differently did everything now appear in which he was concerned? His attentions to Miss King were now the consequence of views solely and hatefully mercenary, and the mediocrity of her fortune proved no longer the moderation of his wishes, but his eagerness to grasp at anything. His behavior to herself could now have had no tolerable motive. He had either been deceived with regard to her fortune "'or had been gratifying his vanity "'by encouraging the preference which he believed "'she had most incautiously shown. "'Every lingering struggle in his favour "'grew fainter and fainter, "'and in farther justification of Mr. Darcy "'she could not but allow that Mr. Bingley, "'when questioned by Jane, "'had long ago asserted his blamelessness in the affair, "'that proud and repulsive as were his manners,' She had never, in the whole course of their acquaintance, an acquaintance which had latterly brought them much together, and given her a sort of intimacy with his ways, seen anything that betrayed him to be unprincipled or unjust, anything that spoke him of irreligious or immoral habits, that among his own connections he was esteemed and valued, that even Wickham had allowed him merit as a brother— and that she had often heard him speak so affectionately of his sister as to prove him capable of some amiable feeling, that, had his actions been what Mr. Wickham represented them, so gross a violation of everything right could hardly have been concealed from the world, and that friendship between a person capable of it and such an amiable man as Mr. Bingley was incomprehensible.' she grew absolutely ashamed of herself. Of neither Darcy nor Wickham could she think, without feeling, she had been blind, partial, prejudiced, absurd. "'How despicably I have acted!' she cried. "'I, who have prided myself on my discernment!' "'I, who have valued myself and my abilities, "'who have often disdained the generous candour of my sister "'and gratified my vanity in useless or blamable mistrust. "'Oh, how humiliating is this discovery! "'Yet, how just a humiliation! "'Had I been in love, I could not have been more wretchedly blind. "'But vanity, not love.' has been my folly. Pleased with the preference of one, and offended by the neglect of the other, on the very beginning of our acquaintance, I have courted prepossession and ignorance, and driven reason away, where either were concerned. Till this moment, I never knew myself. From herself to Jane." From Jane to Bingley, her thoughts were in a line, which soon brought to her recollection that Mr. Darcy's explanation there had appeared very insufficient, and she read it again. Widely different was the effect of a second perusal. How could she deny that credit to his assertions in one instance, which he had been obliged to give in the other, he declared himself to be totally unsuspicious of her sister's attachment, and she could not help remembering what Charlotte's opinion had always been. Neither could she deny the justice of his description of Jane. She felt that Jane's feelings, though fervent, were little displayed, and that there was a constant complacency in her air and manner not often united with great sensibility. When she came to that part of the letter in which her family were mentioned in terms of such mortifying yet merited reproach, her sense of shame was severe. The justice of the charge struck her too forcibly for denial, and the circumstances to which he particularly alluded, as having passed at the Netherfield Ball, and as confirming all his first disapprobation, "'could not have made a stronger impression on his mind than on hers. "'The compliment to herself and her sister was not unfelt. "'It soothed, but it could not console her "'for the contempt which had thus been self-attracted by the rest of her family.' and as she considered that Jane's disappointment had in fact been the work of her nearest relations, and reflected how materially the credit of both must be hurt by such impropriety of conduct, she felt depressed beyond anything she had ever known before. After wandering along the lane for two hours, giving way to every variety of thought— reconsidering events, determining probabilities, and reconciling herself, as well as she could, to a change so sudden and so important. Fatigue and a recollection of her long absence made her at length return home, and she entered the house with the wish of appearing cheerful as usual, and the resolution of repressing such reflections as must make her unfit for conversation. She was immediately told that the two gentlemen from Rosings had each called during her absence, Mr. Darcy, only for a few minutes, to take leave, but that Colonel Fitzwilliam had been sitting with them at least an hour, hoping for her return, and almost resolving to walk after her till she could be found. Elizabeth could but just affect concern in missing him. She really rejoiced at it. Colonel Fitzwilliam was no longer an object. She could think only of her letter. Chapter 37 The two gentlemen left Rosings the next morning, and Mr. Collins, having been in waiting near the lodges to make them his parting obeisance, was able to bring home the pleasing intelligence of their appearing in very good health, and in as tolerable spirits as could be expected, after the melancholy scene so lately gone through at Rosings.' To rosings he then hastened to console Lady Catherine and her daughter, and on his return brought back with great satisfaction a message from her ladyship, importing that she felt herself so dull as to make her very desirous of having them all to dine with her. Elizabeth could not see Lady Catherine without recollecting that, had she chosen it, she might by this time have been presented to her as her future niece. Nor could she think, without a smile, of what her ladyship's indignation would have been. What would she have said? What would she have behaved? were questions with which she amused herself." Their first subject was the diminution of the Rosings' party. "'I assure you, I feel it exceedingly,' said Lady Catherine. "'I believe no one feels the loss of friends so much as I do. But I am particularly attached to these young men, and know them to be so much attached to me. They were excessively sorry to go, but so they always are.' "'The dear Colonel rallied his spirits tolerably, just at last, "'but Darcy seemed to feel it most acutely, more, I think, than last year. "'His attachment to Rosings certainly increases.' "'Mr. Collins had a compliment and an allusion to throw in here, "'which were kindly smiled on by the mother and daughter. "'Lady Catherine observed, after dinner,' that Miss Bennet seemed out of spirits, and immediately accounting for it by herself, by supposing that she did not like to go home again so soon, she added, "'But if that is the case, you must write to your mother and beg that you may stay a little longer. Mrs. Collins will be very glad of your company, I'm sure.' "'I am much obliged to your ladyship for your kind invitation.' replied Elizabeth, but it is not in my power to accept it. I must be in town next Saturday. "'Why, at that rate you will have only been here six weeks. I expected you to stay two months. I told Mrs. Collins so before you came. There can be no occasion for you going so soon. Mrs. Bennet could certainly spare you for another fortnight.' "'But my father cannot,' he wrote last week, to hurry my return. "'Oh, your father, of course, may spare you if your mother can. "'Daughters are never so much of consequence to a father.' and if you will stay another month complete, it will be in my power to take one of you as far as London, for I am going there in early June, for a week, and as Dawson does not object to the barouche-box, there will be very good room for one of you, and indeed, if the weather should happen to be cool, I should not object to taking you both, as you are neither of you large.' "'You are all kindness, madam, but I believe we must abide by our original plan.' Lady Catherine seemed resigned. "'Mrs. Collins, you must send a servant with them. You know I always speak my mind, and I cannot bear the idea of two young women travelling post by themselves. It is highly improper. "'must contrive to send somebody. I have the greatest dislike in the world to that sort of thing. Young women should always be properly guarded and attended according to their situation in life. When my niece Georgiana went to Ramsgate last summer, I made a point of her having two men-servants go with her.' "'Miss Darcy, the daughter of Mr. Darcy of Pemberley, and Lady Anne, "'could not have appeared with propriety in a different manner. "'I am excessively attentive to all these things. "'You must send John with the young ladies, Mrs. Collins. "'I am glad it occurred to me to mention it, "'for it would really be discreditable to you to let them go alone.' "'My uncle is to send a servant for us.' "'Oh, your uncle, he keeps a man's servant, does he? "'I am very glad you have somebody who thinks of these things. "'Where shall you change horses?' "'Oh, Bromley, of course. "'If you will mention my name at the bell, you will be attended to.' Lady Catherine had many other questions to ask respecting their journey, and as she did not answer them all herself, attention was necessary, which Elizabeth believed to be lucky for her, or with a mind so occupied she might have forgotten where she was. Reflection must be reserved for solitary hours. Whenever she was alone, she gave way to it as the greatest relief, and not a day went by without a solitary walk in which she might indulge in all the delight of unpleasant recollections. Mr. Darcy's letter she was in a fair way of soon knowing by heart. She studied every sentence, and her feelings towards its writer were at times widely different. When she remembered the style of his address, she was still full of indignation, but when she considered how unjustly she had condemned and upbraided him, her anger was turned against herself, and his disappointed feelings became the object of compassion. His attachment excited gratitude, his general character respect, but she could not approve him, nor could she for a moment repent her refusal, or feel the slightest inclination ever to see him again. In her own past behaviour, there was a constant source of vexation and regret, and in the unhappy defects of her family, a subject of yet heavier chagrin. They were hopeless of remedy. Her father, contented with laughing at them, would never exert himself to restrain the wild giddiness of his youngest daughters, and her mother, with manners so far from right herself, was entirely insensible of the evil. Elizabeth had frequently united with Jane in an endeavour to check the imprudence of Catherine and Lydia, but while they were supported by their mother's indulgence, what chance could there be of improvement? Catherine, weak-spirited, irritable, and completely under Lydia's guidance, had been always affronted by their advice, and Lydia, self-willed and careless, would scarcely give them a hearing. They were ignorant, idle, and vain. While there was an officer in Meryton, they would flirt with him, and while Meryton was within a walk of Longbourn, they would be going there forever. Anxiety on Jane's behalf was another prevailing concern, and Mr. Darcy's explanation, by restoring Bingley to all her former good opinion, heightened the sense of what Jane had lost. His affection was proved to have been sincere and his conduct cleared of all blame, unless any could attach to the implicitness of his confidence in his friend. How grievous, then, was the thought that of a situation so desirable in every respect, so replete with advantage, so promising for happiness, Jane had been deprived by the folly and indecorum of her own family. When to these recollections was added the development of Wickham's character, it may be easily believed that the happy spirits which had seldom been depressed before were now so much affected as to make it almost impossible for her to appear tolerably cheerful. Their engagements at Rosings were as frequent during the last week of her stay as they had been at the first. The very last evening was spent there, and her ladyship again inquired minutely into the particulars of their journey, gave them directions as to the best method of packing, and was so urgent on the necessity of placing gowns in the only right way, that Maria thought herself obliged, on her return, to undo all the work of the morning, and pack her trunk afresh. When they parted, Lady Catherine, with great condescension, wished them a good journey— and invited them to come to Huntsford again next year, and Miss de Bourgh exerted herself so far as to curtsy and hold out her hand to both. Chapter 38 On Saturday morning, Elizabeth and Mr. Collins met for breakfast a few minutes before the others appeared, and he took the opportunity of paying the parting civilities, which he deemed indispensably necessary, "'I know not, Miss Elizabeth.' Said he, Whether Mrs. Collins has yet expressed her sense of your kindness in coming to us, but I am very certain you will not leave the house without receiving her thanks for it. The favour of your company has been much felt, I assure you. We know how little there is to tempt anyone to our humble abode. Our plain manner of living, our small rooms and few domestics, and the little we see of the world must make Hunsford extremely dull to a young lady like yourself, but I hope you will believe us grateful for the condescension, and that we have done everything in our power to prevent your spending your time unpleasantly. Elizabeth was eager with her thanks and assurances of happiness. She had spent six weeks with great enjoyment, and the pleasure of being with Charlotte, and the kind attentions she had received— must make her feel the obliged. Mr. Collins was gratified, and with a more smiling solemnity replied, it gives me great pleasure to hear that you have passed your time not disagreeably. We have certainly done our best, and most fortunately having it in our power to introduce you to very superior society, and from our connection with Rosings, the frequent means of varying the humble home scene, I think we may flatter ourselves that your unsurred visit cannot have been entirely irksome. "'Our situation with regard to Lady Catherine's family "'is indeed the sort of extraordinary advantage "'and blessing which few can boast. "'You see on what a footing we are?' You see how continually we are engaged there. In truth, I must acknowledge that with all the disadvantages of this humble parsonage, I should not think any one abiding in it an object of compassion while they are sharers of our intimacy at Rosings words were insufficient for the elevation of his feelings and he was obliged to walk about the room while elizabeth tried to unite civility and truth in a few short sentences You may, in fact, carry a very favourable report of us into Hertfordshire, my dear cousin. I flatter myself, at least, that you will be able to do so. Lady Catherine's great attentions to Mrs. Collins you have been a daily witness of, and altogether I trust it does not appear that your friend has drawn an unfortunate... uh, but on this point it will be as well to be silent. Only let me assure you, my dear Miss Elizabeth, that I can, from my heart, most cordially wish you equal felicity in marriage. My dear Charlotte and I have but one mind and one way of thinking. There is in everything a most remarkable resemblance of character and ideas between us we seem to have been designed for each other. Elizabeth could safely say that it was a great happiness where that was the case, and with equal sincerity could add that she firmly believed and rejoiced in his domestic comforts. She was not sorry, however, to have the recital of them interrupted by the lady from whom they sprang. Poor Charlotte. It was melancholy to leave her to such society. But— She had chosen it with her eyes open, and though evidently regretting that her visitors were to go, she did not seem to ask for compassion. Her home and her housekeeping, her her parish and her poultry, and all their dependent concerns, had not yet lost their charms. At length the chaise arrived, the trunks were fastened on, the parcels placed within, and it was pronounced to be ready. After an affectionate parting between the friends, Elizabeth was attended to the carriage by Mr. Collins, and as they walked down the garden, he was commissioning her with his best respects to all her family, not forgetting his thanks for the kindness he had received at Longbourn in the winter, and his compliments to Mr. and Mrs. Gardiner, though unknown. He then handed her in. Mariah followed. "'and the door was on the point of being closed "'when he suddenly reminded them with some consternation "'that they had hitherto forgotten to leave any message "'for the ladies at Rosings. "'But,' he added, "'you will, of course, wish to have your humble respects "'delivered to them, "'with your grateful thanks for their kindness to you "'while you have been here.' "'Elizabeth made no objection. "'The door was then allowed to be shut, "'and the carriage... "'drove off. "'Good gracious!' cried Maria. after a few minutes' silence. "'It seems but a day or two since we first came, "'and yet how many things have happened!' <laughs> "'A great many, indeed,' said her companion, with a sigh. "'We have dined nine times at Rosings, "'besides drinking tea there twice. "'Oh, how much I shall have to tell!' "'Elizabeth added privately and how much I shall have to conceal. Their journey was performed without much conversation or any alarm, and within four hours of their leaving Huntsford they reached Mr. Gardner's house, where they were to remain a few days. Jane looked well, and Elizabeth had little opportunity of studying her spirits amidst the various engagements which the kindness of her aunt had reserved for them. But Jane was to go home with her, and in Longbourn "'there would be leisure enough for observation. "'It was not without an effort, meanwhile, "'that she could wait even for Longbourn "'before she told her sister of Mr. Darcy's proposals.' to know that she had the power of revealing what would so exceedingly astonish Jane, and must at the same time so highly gratify whatever of her own vanity she had not yet been able to reason away, was such a temptation to openness as nothing could have conquered but the state of indecision in which she remained as to the extent of what she should communicate, and her fear, if she once entered on the subject— of being hurried into repeating something of Bingley, which might only grieve her sister further.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Marilyn Lightstone Reads Pride and Prejudice. This episode was produced by Justin Eacock, executive producer Moses Nymer. This is our fifth book in our Marilyn Lightstone Reads podcast. We invite you to go back and listen to Marilyn read The Age of Innocence, Anne of Green Gables, Jane Eyre, and A Christmas Carol. Also, you can help support this podcast by recommending it to your friends and leaving a five-star review in either iTunes or Google. And while you're there, look for a variety of other quality podcasts proudly presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network.